All right, friends, good morning. I'm not going to disrupt your conversation time too much because I'm going to actually send you into more conversation real quick. Um, so we're going to start this morning with a little bit of a, uh, just take about five minutes to have a little preliminary conversation before we get into the teaching. Um, and then you can kind of come back to those groups for our discussion later. So um, so we'll, let's pick some groups of, get around you around four to four or five people. And here's what we're going to chat about. Share an example of a time that you were part of a team of some kind. And things either went pretty well or pretty poorly. This could be a sports team. You could be thinking about a work team, um, a project in the community you were a part of. Um, and if things went well, why do you think that was? Or if you'd, things felt like they really did not work well, why might that have been the case? Okay, so that's what we're starting with. I think everyone here knows each other, but if you don't, obviously introduce yourselves, and then um, we'll go ahead and chat about teams, okay, for about five minutes or so. All right, friends. Some good little chats. Find some, some places where people felt like they were connecting with ideas or, or experiences that resonate. I decided to kick things off this morning with this conversation because today we're starting a new teaching series that I'm calling Let's Collab. And in it, um, I'll be helping us turn our focus to um, another of the priorities that we've named for Haven in this season, growing in collaboration. So what do I mean by that? Well, my hope is that we're continuing to, as we continue to nurture our community and grow in different ways, we're bringing more awareness to how our community functions collectively and thrives when there are a variety of people living into their gifts and serving in ways that bring life. I've said it before, and I feel it perhaps more strongly than ever, this Haven Project was never meant to be the Leah show. It's not just about what I can bring or produce for folks to experience and receive. I may have particular things to contribute, but so do each of you. And the hope and possibility of Haven is not that I or any single one of us can cultivate a safe space for a diverse group of people to connect and grow in relationship with God, the, the God we see in the Jesus tradition. The hope is that we can do that together. We create safe space. We grow in honoring the differences between us and the way those differences enrich our understanding of our creator. I am not Haven, we are, right? And I think in a sense we've long had this aspiration to work collectively, to be Haven communally, and in some ways we certainly have, but there's still a lot of work to be done, to grow, in discerning together and living into what it means for each of us to live and operate in a more collaborative, collective way. And no doubt there are many challenges to that ideal. Our Western, individualistic, capitalist, dominant culture, I think often resists it. We're told to take care of our own, to focus first and foremost on our personal needs and perhaps the needs of our immediate households, our partners, maybe our kids if we have them. And our time and our resources and so on are often organized around these responsibilities. We may feel the pressure of these responsibilities heavily. 
feel the weight of them. Fear that to expand our circle of concern outside of our own immediate sphere means failing to meet those pressing needs. But what we might miss in staying hyper-focused on our own little circles, is everything okay? Okay. Um, is that this isn't the only way to organize life. Just because it's the culturally dominant way doesn't make it the best way. Growing in collaboration isn't just about the way we organize our time on Sundays even. It should include that, sure, but growing in collaboration also means just growing in the ways we can do life together. So I think the challenge of collaboration might actually feel different for different ones of us, depending on a variety of factors, including our own proximity to various sources of social power. So to reflect on this challenge, and perhaps what the first step might be in meeting it together, I'm gonna to invite us to look at a story today that comes from the Hebrew Bible. And, and I'll, I'll be exploring this whole thing I just said about social power as we go. So if you kind of aren't sure what you're tracking, that's okay. Um, this is a story that I think speaks to some of the challenge of working collaboratively, but also perhaps to the benefit of it, as well as the way I think the divine is present as we can lean into that collective spirit. So. With that in mind, I'm going to invite us to consider a story that you may or may not know that's found in the fifth chapter of the book of 2 Kings, back in the Hebrew Bible. Okay, so some background context on our story. The story takes place in the period of the Hebrew Bible in which the nation of Israel has been divided into two different kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom that retains the name Israel. They have one king. And then the southern kingdom is called Judah. The north of Israel is a neighboring nation uh, called the Kingdom of Aram at this time. Aram, later known as Syria, has more military strength than Israel. It's essentially kind of oppressing its southern neighbor. Um, but their power over Israel is not at this point absolute. So they haven't been able to conquer. They haven't been able to like fully occupy Israel. Israel still has their own king. But the Arameans are keeping the Israelites on their toes. Uh, along the northern border of Israel, the southern border of Aram, um, Aram has been victorious in a number of raids where these like small bands of warriors from Aram come in and plunder the Israelites, capturing goods, money, uh, even people that they can use as, as slaves, servants. And then they get out before the Israel army is able to respond. And this is the setting for the story that we're going to look at in 2 Kings 5. So I'll read the story. You're welcome to read along as it's projected if you like. So Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man and in high favor with his master because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man, though a mighty warrior, suffered from a skin disease. Now the Arameans on one of their raids had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel and she served Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, if only my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his skin disease. So Naaman went in and told his Lord just what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And the king of Aram said, go then and I will send along a letter to the king of Israel. And he went. 
taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of garments. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you my servant Naaman, that you may cure him of his skin disease. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God? to give death or life, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his skin disease. Just look and see how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me, that he may learn that there is a prophet in Israel. Okay, so we're going to stop there for a moment just to make sure we're all tracking. So the narrator has introduced us to a few characters so far. We have the primary person we're following, this military commander from the, from the kingdom north of Israel, Naaman. And the story presents him as this like tough war hero in many respects, but with one challenging problem um, that all of his toughness cannot alleviate. He has a skin disease. Now, some translators um, translate this as leprosy, but our translation has opted for a more generic term because in ancient Hebrew at this time, that one word could be used for all kinds of skin conditions, which include the disease that we would come to be known as leprosy, but also could include other skin diseases. So we're not totally sure the nature of the skin disease he has. It could be what we understand to be leprosy later. It could have been something else. So Naaman, it says, is suffering from this disease of the skin, but his wife's young servant girl who was captured from Israel in one of those raids informs him that in Israel there is a prophet who might be able to help. So Naaman goes to his king and gets permission to travel to Israel and seek this prophet with potentially healing powers. And the king of Aram agrees and he sends a letter with Naaman to the king of Israel which he intends I think to be like an act of diplomacy letting Israel's king know that Naaman comes in peace, they've got all of these gifts, um, he's seeking their help. But of course, Israel's king doesn't interpret it that way. He thinks it's a threat. He thinks it's a pretense for war. Uh, Aram, the bully of the north, is coming to him seeking a miracle. And when Israel can't deliver it, Aram can try to claim that that is a reason for more aggressive military action. So the Israeli, Israelite king freaks out. But Elisha, the prophet, who's operating on Yahweh's behalf in Israel at the time, he gets wind of the whole thing and he tells the king not to fret, just send this foreign commander my way. So that's where we're going to pick up the story. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and halted at the entrance of Elisha's home. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go, wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman became angry and went away saying, I thought that for me, he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, and would wave his hand over the spot and cure the skin disease. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? He turned and went away in a rage. But his servants approached and said to him, Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more when all he said to you was wash and be clean? So he went down and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan, 
according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy. And he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God. He and all his company, he came and he stood before him and said, now I know there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Please accept a present from your servant. But he said, as the Lord lives, this is Elisha, said, as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will accept nothing. Naaman urged him to accept, but Elisha refused. And then Naaman said, if not, please let two mule loads of earth be given to your servant. For your servant will no longer offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any God except the Lord. But may the Lord pardon your servant on one count. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow down in the house of Ramon, where I do bow, when I do bow down in the house of Ramon, may the Lord pardon your servant on this one count. And Elisha said to him, go in peace. Okay, so to review the rest of the story, Naaman sent to the prophet Elisha. Elisha doesn't even come out to see him, let alone put on a big healing spectacle like Naaman expects. But he does send word for Naaman to wash himself in the River Jordan seven times. Naaman's offended at what he thinks is a ridiculous set of instructions, but his servants do convince him to give it a try. And when he does, miraculously, Naaman is cured. His skin, it says, is like that of a young boy. Naaman is moved and now inspired to worship Yahweh. He wants to take soil from Israel back to build an altar in his homeland so he can worship the God of this land. Um, Naaman, uh, and then he offers gifts and thanksgiving and Elisha, the prophet refuses them and sends Naaman on his way. That's the story. So why this story? What is it about this obscure little ancient narrative that I think seems relevant to our conversation on collaboration? Well, I share this story because I think it illustrates um, one foundational truth about living more fully into collaboration that we would do well to note. And I'd summarize that truth this way. Collaboration begins with humility, requiring the humbling of those with power. Collaboration begins with humility, requiring the humbling, particularly, of those with power. So to me, this story at its heart is not about a miraculous healing of a physical ailment or the conversion of a foreigner to faith in Yahweh, though many have interpreted it in both of those ways um, through the generations. But what this story speaks to me more significantly about is the experience of being humbled and how the experience of humbling can actually open up new insights new ways of relating to others, new experiences of the divine that can make genuine collaboration with others a real possibility in a way it wasn't before. So the central character of our narrative is Naaman. The storyteller has us follow his journey. But if we see his journey as being simply about going from physically diseased to cured, or from a pagan, use that potential term, to a worshiper of Yahweh, I think we miss perhaps the way the story can function most helpfully and most justly. 
Naaman must become humbled to participate in the collaborative divine work happening in his midst. The mighty warrior, the proud, powerful, strong man must submit to those his culture says have less power than he does. He must follow their lead. He must engage in ways he never would have imagined. The great and powerful man must become like a young boy. Now, I don't think any of us are military commanders. We may be far from macho embodiments of toxic masculinity, but each of us to varying, varying degrees likely has some elements of social power in our world. All of us as Westerners living in the Bay Area, just that alone means we have privileges relative to much of the world. And then there are the various parts of our own intersectional identities that confer on us varying degrees of social power. This could be based on our race, our level of education, our income, our able-bodiedness, our sexual identities, our gender, and so on. In whatever areas we too hold some form of power, I think this story invites us to consider what it might mean to be humbled in that area. So what do I mean specifically? How does being humbled show up in this story? I'm gonna pull out a few different elements that seem to me to be an important part of getting humble that are touched on in this story. And I invite you to consider how they function for Naaman and also how they might function for each of us. So the first one is this, getting humble can include listening to perspectives that challenge our own. Listening to perspectives that challenge our own. So the story starts with the actions of someone who's presented by the storyteller in stark contrast to the character the narrator is focusing on. You see, Naaman, the text tells us, is great and large. It uses these big, big words. He's a man of power in a patriarchal world, but his healing experience would not have happened had it not been for the words of someone at the very far other end of the social ladder, an unnamed small young servant girl. Those are the words they use to describe her. A small young girl, servant, slave from Israel. Our storyteller doesn't even give her a name, but is the courage of this girl to speak with care to those who hold much more power over her and tell them what she knows that propels the whole thing forward. Everything else that happens, happens because she shares her insight about that prophet in Israel. And this is the first challenging perspective Naaman must hear that the neighboring nation he's been bullying may hold the power to cure him. That the girl he probably abducted for his wife may know more about how he can be cured than he does. But this isn't the only challenging perspective Naaman's invited to consider. Throughout the story, we continue to see Naaman wrestling with points of view that are different than his own having to attend to the voices of those who hold less social power than he does. So Elisha the prophet, 
does not present himself in ways that would conform to ancient cultural expectations of strength and masculinity, which are clearly very important to Naaman. Whereas the work of men in this time was understood to take place outside of the home, Elisha remains indoors, generally understood to be the sphere of the less socially respected females. Elisha does not put on a show of strength. He does not promenade in front of a crowd with a miraculous spectacle. Rather, he sends word from inside his home for Naaman to wash himself. He gives a messenger the task of delivering the prescription, forcing Naaman to hear the instructions from the servant of an Israelite prophet, someone he's likely to feel is several social rungs beneath him. And when he's angered by the prescription, it's again the courageous words of his own servants that convinces Naaman to give Elisha's treatment a try. Though Naaman resists it, throughout the narrative, he only experiences help when he's willing to listen to voices that speak with the wisdom of those who live with less social power, perspectives that at times challenge his own understanding. So though our cultural context is certainly very different, today we too can see plenty of examples, I think, of people who hold, hey, welcome, people who hold social power because they are a part of a dominant social majority feeling threatened by alternative perspectives and reaching, def reacting defensively instead of opening themselves up with curiosity to the challenging view. I'm gonna say that again. I think in our cultural context, we have plenty of examples right now of folks who are part of a dominant social majority feeling threatened when alternative perspectives are offered and potentially reacting defensively instead of being open to the new voice, to the challenging view. Many of the fights happening around the country about what can be taught in our schools I think come from this place of feeling threatened by perspectives that challenge the dominant view, whether they be perspectives about race, about sexual identity, about gender. So books are being banned, curriculum shaped out of fear of these alternative perspectives instead of welcoming the expansive understanding that they might bring, right? Track him. And it's against this cultural backdrop, that all happening outside of our little community, but it's in that, in, that, in that world that we at Haven are trying to cultivate some sort of counter-cultural space that can hold safety and diversity, believing Jesus is in the midst of it as we do. But for this to be a real possibility, it means we must continually be doing the work collectively of both supporting and empowering folks who experience marginalization in our social reality to speak their truth, like the young girl, while those who come from places of more relative social power are encouraged to listen with curiosity, a desire to learn, particularly from perspectives that might challenge their social norms. It's not easy work, it's not fast work, but I think it's an important process
to be continually seeking to labor in if we are going to live more collaboratively. We have to be humbled. The second step I see in being humbled in our story here that I think is relevant for us is engaging with embarrassment and awkwardness. Engaging with embarrassment and awkwardness. Sounds fun, right? (laughs) Naaman eventually does what's being asked of him even though he feels embarrassed and awkward doing it. He clearly thinks bathing in the Jordan is beneath him. And to do so in order to pursue a potential cure puts him in a place of real awkwardness. Personally, I wonder if this is why Elisha instructed him to do it seven times. Well, it's true. The seven represents completion often in the era of the Bible. That might be one layer of meaning. It's also real that seven washings requires more commitment than one. For Naaman to really experience change, he has to go all in. To really commit, to feel as awkward as he is. Until the fear of doing it all wrong or looking foolish or becoming less in someone else's eyes is not blocking his participation anymore. He just has to let that go. Most of us come into the ways we show up in the world over a long period of time. We might be raised from birth to speak a certain way, to walk a certain way, to worship a certain way, to laugh at certain jokes, and so on. But when we begin to be shaped by other perspectives that don't share that experience, particularly ones that are different or challenge our own way of showing up, it can feel awkward to try to do something different. We might feel super self-conscious, hyper-aware of our capacity of doing it wrong. We may feel fear of foolishness, of losing the respect of others, perhaps more seriously. We may feel legitimately fearful of harming others, especially if we find out our actions have already caused harm. And while hopefully this concern makes us more aware of the impact of our actions and and careful as we proceed, if we get stuck in the fear of doing it wrong, we never have a chance to learn to do it better. You hear that? If we get stuck in the fear of doing it wrong, we never have a chance to learn to do it better. We need to cultivate brave spaces of courage and grace where together we can be willing to try and fail, to be embarrassed, to be a bit awkward, and over time to become more practiced and more proficient of operating in safer ways for those we collaborate with. And that brings me to the last component of getting humble in this story that I think is relevant for us letting go of self-sufficiency. Letting go of self-sufficiency. Some scholars suggest that this story might not really be about leprosy or any other skin ailment at all. Perhaps the skin disease represents something less concrete, but actually more vital. Naaman goes from being, again, these words that are used in the beginning, great, big, to like a small child. 
he becomes like the girl who spoke to him in the first place. The word that's used to describe the nature of his skin at the end is, is the male version of the same word that's used to describe her at the beginning. The word has connotations not just of children, but also of servants. In order to experience change, Naaman has to become like the young maid at the beginning. He has to let go of the myth that he can take care of himself. He has to embrace his need to live in collaborative connection with others. Perhaps this is why Elisha refuses to accept his payment. Elisha doesn't want to give Naaman the satisfaction of believing he bought his healing in any way. If he made a significant financial gift, Naaman might walk away feeling justified in receiving this care, the myth of capitalism that says that his spending power entitles him to the good things in life might still be in place. But for Elisha, it was never about the skin. The problem Naaman needs to be cured of is the superficial air that he wears that separates him from others convincing him that with enough power, power that comes unjustly at the expense of others, he has exploited, but with enough of it, he can take care of himself and his own. Elisha would rather Naaman stay humble, recognizing how powerless he actually is to save himself and how much he is in need of the divine and all, that the, all of the folks the divine brings him into contact with. Now, there's an epilogue to our story that seems to make this point further. If you came back to this chapter and read to the, re the rest of 2 Kings 5, you'll see a reversal of our story. After Naaman departs, a servant of Elisha named Gehazi decides it's a shame to refuse the riches that Naaman is so willing to part with. So he follows Naaman, and he catches up with him, and he feeds him a story about how some other prophets have come to visit Elisha, and that caused uh, the prophet Elisha to decide he could use some funds after all, not for himself, of course, but for these people who are coming to visit. And so Naaman happily agrees, and he loads Gehazi up with some clothes and 150 pounds of silver, which is still only a fraction of the wealth he brought with him. And Gehazi greedily takes his loot back home and he hides it. And then he returns to Elisha who asks him where he's been and Gehazi denies having gone anywhere. But Elisha makes clear he knows what Gehazi has done. Is this a time, he asks his servant, to accept silver and to accept clothing, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female slaves, the kinds of things that Naaman has been enriching himself with, plundering the Israelites. Is it a time to accept all of that? Therefore, the skin disease of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. Gehazi, in seeking to enrich himself, has given into the same spirit of self-sufficiency that justifies his ex the exploitation of others. This is the ailment. Elisha has successfully cured the foreign commander of, only to have the same ailment caught like an infectious disease by a member of his own household. If we're to live collaboratively, it means living with an understanding that we all need one another, 
None of us is truly self-sufficient. The self-sufficiency that lies at the heart of our contemporary idols, the idols of white supremacy and patriarchy and capitalism and ableism, that harms all of us. That myth of self-sufficiency isolates us and makes it think it's only on us alone to make our own destiny. Or maybe that God helps them who help themselves. What this story and the whole life and ministry of Jesus point us to is the path to freedom and connection with the divine and one another comes through humility and comes through honoring our need of one another. Amen? So I want to end by sharing something personal about the ways that the insights of this story are connected to my own journey and the ways I'm trying to grow as a leader and a follower of Jesus in this season. So it's been about a year since I returned from sabbatical. And truthfully, this past year has been tougher than I was expecting. I came back hopeful for the next season of building community together, eager to hear what Haven had been learning as a community during that time. The theme of collaboration came up quickly. I was excited to hear about how this community had collaboratively cared for one another and held the Haven space in that season. And I hoped that that collaborative spirit would continue going forward and that I could be a part of helping foster that work. And while that has been happening to some degree, sometimes in quite beautiful and unexpected ways, some of us at the camping trip, I think, saw a glimpse of that. There have been other experiences that have felt discouraging and even painful. Since the beginning of this year, I think you all know, we've lost two of our most central leaders, women of color, in leadership. And I miss their voices in our community. And I still grieve the losses, just like I know many of you do even as I also honor and celebrate them naming and pursuing what they need in this season, which I do. Each of these women had their own reasons for moving on, some of which are quite personal to them. But their departures also must bring up real questions about our community's capacity to live fully into our values of inclusivity and justice, of creating safe space for a diverse group of people unto Jesus. We would be remiss not to consider, not to ask questions about how we can continue to grow in anti-oppression work so that all who are a part of our community in any way, but particularly those with marginalized identities, can feel like they can bring their full selves into our space and be fully honored, heard, loved. So through much of this year, I found myself wrestling with in what ways I, as a leader, may contribute to the gap between perhaps what we as a community intend and the impact of some of our actions. And I've come to understand that though I have long hoped to cultivate safe space for a diverse group of people with Jesus in the midst, I still have more learning to do. I understand that there are times where I have missed cross-cultural communication. I have perhaps failed to hear 
what someone might have been trying to tell me because my own hearing has been shaped by my whiteness. Similarly, at times I may have communicated in ways that might have made others feel distanced instead of brought close. And I grieve these revelations deeply and when I receive them, uh, when I've heard perspectives that have challenged my own, it's, I'll be honest, it's been hard at times not to shut down, not to get defensive, not to disqualify myself, withdraw from the work altogether because it just feels too hard. But I don't believe that is the heart of the divine. To let me cancel myself because I've made mistakes. I believe God is actually calling me into something that truthfully feels sometimes harder, but also more raw and beautiful and hopefully redemptive. I believe I'm called into the awkwardness, into the embarrassment, into the space of having to say, I'm so sorry for the places I've brought pain or hurt. And I am. And I am also committed to bringing repair where I can. So I say that to all of you. I'm sorry. And I'm not going to do this perfectly. But I do want to do better. I feel called, like Naaman, to step into the water. Not just once, not just twice, but however many times it takes to experience real transformation. And part of that work includes letting go of places of self-sufficiency, of believing I can just get there on my own. I know I need the companionship and the learning from others, and I'm so grateful for any sources from which that learning comes. So to all of you who are here or listening to this later, particularly, to my siblings of color, I want to know that I welcome your teaching. I'm open to your feedback. If you feel like there are spaces where I may have missed something with you in terms of cross-cultural communication, where something didn't feel good as it landed, or like I couldn't hear what you might be trying to say, if you're open to sharing that feedback with me, I would be honored to receive it in whatever way feels good for you, share it. But I also know it's not the job of our siblings of color, of our queer siblings, of our disabled siblings, or so on, to educate those of us who are white or straight or able-bodied. This is difficult work, which we must own for ourselves as best as we are able. So I'm also trying to expand my own learning continually do that work on my own as I can. I recently started listening to a podcast that Ginny recommended called White People Work, which has some really helpful discussions and resources. And I'm going to be continuing to work through these resources. And I want to invite anyone else in the community who identifies as white to consider joining me if you want. I'm happy to set some times together where we could discuss some of what we're learning together. Maybe once a month we gather on Zoom, discuss an episode with none of us coming as teachers, but all of us as co-learners together. If that's something you'd like to be a part of, you can let me know. 
and I'll welcome you to join me. The experience of getting humble isn't generally fun. Jesus described it as taking up a cross, which he quite literally did. But I do believe it's necessary for all of us in different ways so that we can truly honor the gifts one another brings and receive them with joy and care. Those of us who have social power in whatever ways we have it must learn to lay it down, to understand truly our own need of one another so that collaboration can actually be safe and empowering for everyone. So we can join together as a team that works well and not a team that works poorly. So I pray that as we continue to grow in collaboration, we will begin with humility, following the one who showed us what it means to become less, that we might find so much more. All right, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get back into our groups for a little more discussion. God, I thank you that you are a God of grace and love. That you are a God who graciously calls us um, into the work of, hum of being humbled. Because you know it actually also brings freedom. The freedom to let go of the myth that we can fix it all ourselves. The freedom to live interdependent. The freedom both to give and to receive. And so I ask that that would be a continual work. That as we in this season participate in growing in collaboration, we would continue to grow in this area too. What does it mean for us, particularly those of us who hold some social power, to find ways to be challenged, to be awkward when we need to do something different, to let go of our self-sufficiency. Would you be in the midst of us modeling what that looks like, oh Jesus? And would we experience new freedom, new life, new joy as we collaborate? Amen. So we'll return to our groups, and here's what I've got for us to chat about. Um, first, there's a few different prompts. You can go with whatever feels right to you. How does the story strike you? Perhaps what characters do you feel the most connected to? Or are there areas in your life you've experienced getting humbled? How did that process happen? Or which of these tasks of getting humble that I mentioned do you recognize potentially need to grow in? Listening to challenging perspectives, engaging with awkwardness and embarrassment, letting go of self-sufficiency, what might that look like for you? Okay, we'll take about 10 minutes to discuss and then come back for closing worship. 